Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream and uh, especially for uh, our uh, campuses. But um, this morning, Reach Church Paola, it's their official launch uh, Sunday. So would you join me in just congratulating um, Reach Paola? Big deal. And so Reach Paola, we, we rejoice with you and what God has been doing, what God is doing, what God will do. I also want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto and the venue service right down the hall. Well, as we turn our attention to, to chapter 4 in 2 Samuel, we really come to the culmination of what we've been waiting on for a very, very long time. And you think we've been waiting on it, and think about David. He's been waiting for a really long time as well. I'm trying to do some math on this. The dates and nailing it down is a little bit difficult, but we can say with a good bit of confidence that about 15 years of David's life have been uh, waiting for and moving towards this moment. They've not been easy years. About half his life at this point has been a path of uh, being rejected, despised, pushed out, and waiting, waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, if you read the Psalms, one of the things that you'll see over and over and over again is this admonition from David to wait upon the Lord. You know why David can tell us to, to wait on the Lord? Because he had to wait on the Lord a lot. He had to patiently wait for God to bring to fulfillment what he had promised. And God in whom he had trusted and the God in whom he had waited on is faithful. And now God will clear the path. And in this moment, as God has, has been working in David's life, he has been changing him. He's been molding him into the image of Christ. And you've seen us do this as we've walked through David's life up to this point. We've seen Christ in David in so many ways. He's not the Messiah. He's flawed. He's a sinner just like you and me. But on so many occasions, he points us to Jesus. And I think there's no passage or no point in David's life that gives us a clear demonstration of our king, the Lord's Messiah Jesus, than this passage this morning. Now, to get the full picture, we're going to have to sneak our way into chapter 5, all right? So forgive me. We're going we're to go in chapter 5, maybe four verses, but we'll get through it. Let me pray for us. We'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, um, we come this morning with humble hearts, teachable hearts, to be, to be changed. That is the reason we come this morning, not for information, but transformation. Just like David, we want to be transformed. We want to be molded and shaped more and more in the image of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray by means of your word this morning, we would align our lives. God, let us never be guilty of adjusting your word to fit our lives, but help us to conform our lives to your word. Speak to us this morning. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me, chapter four, verse one. It says, now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all of Israel was disturbed. You remember Ishbosheth, this weak king of the north. He's a son of Saul. He's a descendant of Saul, so he was a rightful heir to the throne. He's a weak man. Um, he wasn't thought highly enough of to even be brought out in the battle with Saul, so he won't die with Saul and Jonathan, the other sons, but he'll be back at home. He's a weak man, and, and Abner has used him. He's a puppet king. Abner has exalted him, put him in a position of leadership over the nation to fulfill his own purposes. So here is Ishbosheth. He's a weak man who's been controlled primarily by Abner, and he has now heard. He knows that Abner went over to David. He knows that he's gone over there to, to form some kind of alliance, 
And that alone has, has left him incredibly disturbed, probably very scared. What will that mean for him? If, if Abner pledges allegiance to David and Israel comes under David's leadership, he probably won't have a role. And if you were a descendant of the enemy, then the, the king that would now ascend would just take you out and kill you. Things don't look good for him. He's incredibly disturbed. But then he receives news back uh, that Abner has been killed. Abner has died. He gets word back. Uh, he probably doesn't have all the information. He doesn't know that David has re uh, reacted in such a fashion to say that what Joab did was wrong. And he actually grieves Abner's death and gives him a funeral and honors him in front of the nation. Good chance Ishbosheth doesn't know that. All he knows is Abner went over to form an alliance with David and he died. And that news, if he wasn't already disturbed, now having heard that Abner had died, it says he lost courage. Literally in Hebrew, he lost his grip. He went nuts. He lost it. It's over for me. There's no hope for me. Abner was his only hope. It's so funny. Abner's the guy you remember last week in chapter three. He called him out for sleeping with one of his dad's concubines. And, uh, and then this week when he finds out he's dead, he loses courage. He's a guy that he couldn't live with. And he couldn't live without. And now all hope is lost. He knows I'm an enemy of David and I am certain to die. Not only was Ishbosheth scared and disturbed, but all of Israel, it says here, was disturbed. Why would all of Israel be disturbed? Well, all of Israel is disturbed because they have pledged allegiance to David's enemy, Ishbosheth. They have pledged allegiance to an opposing king. And now it is apparent, David, this one that God had promised would ascend to the throne and be ruler over Egypt, he is going to be king. And there's nothing they can do that, that can stop it. And now knowing that they have opposed this king that's coming into power, their fear is he's gonna come in, he'll kill all us. We're all goners. We're enemies. We've opposed him. We've rebelled against him. And we're in a place, we stand in a place of judgment and wrath. And what we're seeing here is the house of Saul is incre increasingly growing weaker and David's house is growing stronger. And then we see two men. Look at verse two. It says, Saul's son had two, uh, two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Benah, the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Barathite, uh, of the sons of Benjamin. For Baroth is also considered a part of Benjamin. And the Barathites fled to get him and have been aliens there until this day. So Saul's son, Ishbosheth, he's got a couple of commanders, pretty strong guys, probably private bodyguards, which will also uh, help explain why they could get into the house of Ishbosheth that we're going to see in just a moment. But these were guys that he relied upon. And uh, they're sons of Benjamin, even though they're Barathites. Uh, he gives us some further information here, a lot of conjecture from the commentators over why this information about them going down to get him and being included in the tribe of Benjamin is here. Uh, I can just tell you what I believe. Um, they, the, 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 the word that I picked out that really caught my attention is that it, it says here that they were aliens. You remember that when the Amalekite came uh, to David and told him about Saul's death and that he had killed King Saul as, as a kind of a mercy killing and he brought news thinking it was going to find him in a position of favor with David and it didn't. But you remember as David interrogate, interrogates that Amalekite a little further, he finds out that he is an alien. 
Meaning this is a guy who incorporated himself into the nation of Israel, was probably born in Israel. And so the, even though he was an Amalekite, he had lived in the nation long enough to know what the law of God was. Therefore, he was not ignorant of the law that you don't touch the Lord's anointed. He knew it and therefore he was guilty. He was culpable for his actions. I think this is here to tell us these Barathites, they might not have been direct lineage, but they are included in this group and they've been living in Israel for some time and this is a guy, these two guys, they know better. They know what the law of God states. I think there's also a part of this to, that's here that, to let us know that David is innocent. Over and over again in this passage, we're gonna be reminded that David is, is innocent. He's not uh, implicated in any way in the deaths of Ishbosheth, nor was he implicated in Abner's death, nor was he implicated in Saul's death. Because there's some out there that would say, surely David is working behind the scenes through these sons of, of Ramon to, to work to kill Ishbosheth to make his way to the kingdom. But this is here to remind us, these were Benjamites. Uh, they were not of the tribe of Judah. They have no connection with David. David is completely innocent. Whatever the viewpoint, whatever the interpretation might be, these are two men that know they're in a bad spot. Again, the house of Saul is crumbling. It's a house of cards. Everything is coming down. And so these guys say, we better do something. We gotta make a move or we'll be goners too. Most of the people in this story will humble themselves under the Lord's anointed King David. These two men and their pride and their arrogance think they can manipulate the Lord's anointed to find favor and salvation. We're gonna find out it's not gonna work out well for them. But then we have included the story of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Look at this in verse four. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a, crippled, a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now there's so many people that look at this and say, this is so weird. Why is this included here in the story of Ishbosheth's death? Why do we stop and get this one little verse on Mephibosheth? And we're gonna get more information on him a little later. We're gonna get a chapter on this guy. But why is it included here? Why do we get this introduction to him? Well, it's so important in that day Remember, if there's anybody left in the lineage of the previous king, they are the person who was the rightful heir to the throne. And so there's always gonna be uh, out there in the, the, the backs of people's minds that there is another son and he could be king and maybe he should be king. And the word of God has recorded us this here about Mephibosheth to say to us, listen, even though Mephibosheth exists, he is crippled and he is in no position to be king. He's in no position to reign over the nation. What we're seeing here in every way, God is letting us know that he is clearing the path. Everything has been removed. Every obstacle has been set aside so that David can now ascend to the throne. But let me just give you an aside note, something that sticked out to me. Um, I read about Ishbosheth and then I read about Mephibosheth and these guys who are coming down and David is ascending. And Ishbosheth, he He's a weak man, he's being used by others, but there's no indication here that he's um, necessarily evil or, or uh, wicked. He's just weak, and he's used by another individual and he's gonna end up dying. And then you got Mephibosheth, this cripple, and their stories are included here, and God gives us information about him. We'll get more information about Mephibosheth, and we're gonna see the compassion of David on this, this crippled heir to the throne. 
And we wonder, why are these stories included? And, and part of me believes that part of the reason that these are included are, are to remind us that God is not just interested in the, the, the powerful. He's not just interested in the wealthy. He's not just interested in the, in the intellectual. He's interested in the weak. He, he's interested in the, the crippled. He's interested in the broken. Because I don't know about you, but more often when I read these stories in Scripture, half the time I identify more closely with the Ishbosheths and the Mephibosheths than I do David's and Joab's. And the message of Scripture from beginning to end is that God loves the whole world, not just one particular class or group of people, but he loves the innocent, he loves the broken, he loves the weak, the crippled, he loves those and any of those who will come to him in humility. Ishbosheth. King David says, we're gonna grieve over the death of this innocent man. He shouldn't have died in this way. And Mephibosheth, we're gonna take care of him as well because God loves the weak, the poor, and the broken. Well, then we read on. Look at it, it says in verse five. So the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Rechab, and Banah departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. And they came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. So here's these two men, in light of the fact that, that Ishbosheth's kingdom's coming down, and they're enemies, and they know, hey, we're goners. They know we gotta do something. And their thought is, we're gonna manipulate the circumstances to try to fool King David into thinking that we have conquered his enemy, so we're gonna go ahead and kill Ishbosheth. we're gonna take him to the head, and he'll be pleased with this, he'll give us a position of power, and we'll save ourselves by means of our own manipulation and our righteous deeds. How many of you think that David is gonna be duped by their manipulation and their deceitful tactics? Not a chance. But this is the thought that's going through their mind. We've already seen this with the, with the, the Amalekite who, th who came thinking that he was gonna press the Lord's anointed in his own righteous deeds. Well, that's the same thought of these guys. And so they, they go in. Uh, they probably are personal bodyguards, which gave them access to the king. They go in while he's sleeping. Um, when should a man be more protected than when he's in his house taking a nap? And there he is in the middle of the day. And they go in. They strike him in the belly. It is cold-blooded murder. They take the head, they're running, they run all night to meet up with King David, present this head to him, hoping that they're gonna get this great reward. You know, I tell you all the time, I just share this, tell you how goofed up, messed up your pastor is, but I look at these stories, sometimes I put myself in the feet of these people, and I'm thinking, how do you carry a beheaded head all night as you're traveling? Like, how does that work? These are some disgusting individuals, I'm just gonna tell you. But anyway, that's the way my mind works and that's stuff I think about as I'm reading these passages. I just want you to know I'm a knuckle-headed dude. I'm kind of like Pastor Bill. I'm a little weird, you know? I mean, there you go. So the, these are the things me and Bill would sit around and talk about, wouldn't we? Where, how do you carry the head? Do you lay it next to you? What is it? You hold it by the hair? I mean, I don't know. But anything, weird deal. Man, I hope I just didn't. Parents, I'm so sorry if you're bringing your little kids with you to church. <laughs> so they travel all night. They think they're gonna please King David. Verse eight, then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and on his descendants. So they come here, so interesting. They, they bring this, they've, they've committed murder and they, they say, we brought your enemy. By the way, David never saw them as his enemies. 
Um, David never saw them as people that he had to take out of the way. He trusted in the Lord. But they say the Lord, isn't this interesting? The Lord has given my Lord the King vengeance this day. They commit a sinful act and they do so under the guise of doing the Lord's work. Are there people out there that today that will seek to justify their own sinful activity on the basis of the Lord's word? They will use theology to back you into a corner to get you to do what they want you to do. Listen, we gotta be very careful in some of these situations. Just because, we've seen this throughout the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel now, just because God creates a situation for you in his providence doesn't mean that you should act on that situation. Oftentimes, the providence of God is bringing you into an opportunity to demonstrate your obedience to God by not doing what he's presented in front of you. You remember, David has multiple opportunities to take King Saul's life, and all of his buddies would say to him, here's the providence of God. He's put it right there in front of you. And what David would say is we don't judge our activities on the basis of provision. We we judge our activities on the basis of God's word. And that's a sinful activity. And even though it might be provided for me, I will not act upon it because it's not in accordance with God's word. So these men, they're going to use God's word. They're gonna manipulate God's word to justify their activities and say the Lord ordained this. Well, David sees right through their deceitfulness. Look at verse nine. David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, sons of Ramon, the Barathite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. I love this. As the Lord lives. They took the name of the Lord in vain. David is going to use the Lord's name properly, and he's gonna remind them of something that they need to know. That the Lord lives. In other words, Let me tell you something about God. You may know about him, but the most important thing you need to know about him is he sees everything you do. He's living. He's alive. He sees the activities and the actions of men, and not just the action of men, but he knows the motivations of their heart. And so David says, listen, you're gonna gonna blame this on God? Not a chance. God saw what you did. God was there. And he says that the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life. You know what David is saying there? I have learned you don't manipulate God. You trust in God. You're faithful to God. I think what David is saying, he's always taking care of me when I just walked in faithfulness. Kind of that line of that hymn, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. You know what David's learned? I've learned you just trust God. You don't take matters into your own hands. And that's what you guys did. And you're guilty. You're culpable. So look at what David goes on to say. In uh, verse 10, when one told me, saying, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? David says, let me tell you a story about another guy. (laughs) Don't you think they start getting nervous now? There was another guy who just so happened to show up, very similar deal, head, killed a guy named King Saul and thought he was gonna get reward. You know what I did with him at Ziklag? He dead. Don't you think at that moment they're thinking, this ain't going well. This ain't going the way we thought it would. He said, listen, what David is declaring, there's a new sheriff in town. And my kingdom 
my kingdom will be marked by law and order with liberty and justice for all. That's what he would have said. There's going to be justice in this kingdom. It's not going to be about advancing your own agenda. And it's not going to be even what's best for me. Because this, did this make life better for David? Yeah, it cleared the path. But David says, it's not about me. It's about upholding and living by God's word and his law and being faithful to him. And you have acted in rebellion and disobedience to God's word. And sin must be punished. God is just. And you have committed sin And it will be punished. Look at what he does in that last verse, verse 12. Then David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. If you're a little boy, these are fun stories, aren't they? I mean, just get excited about these. This is extreme. I mean, you look at this and say, what in the world? I mean, this is cruel. And what is going on here? In the Old Testament, if a man committed a sin that was guilty or punishable by death, they would hang them on a tree. They would hang them on a tree for everybody to see, saying that they acted in sinful rebellion, they are guilty, and sin must be punished. By the way, do we know of anyone else who, uh, Scripture said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, who hung on a tree, not for his sins, but for ours, to demonstrate the justice and the wrath of God? against our sin. So in the Old Testament, you, man committed sin, punishable by death, you hung him on a tree for everybody to see. Well, apparently the commentators agree that, that, that this is occurring later in the evening and they couldn't allow a body to hang overnight. And so what David does here is because we can't let the body hang overnight, we're just gonna take the hands and the feet and we're gonna hang them up by the pool of Hebron. And do you know what David is saying here? He's painting a very clear picture to this nation. This, this nation, I don't care what you guys used to get away with with Eli and his sons. And I don't care what you used to get away with Saul. In this nation, justice and law and order will prevail. And you sin and it's gonna be punished. You know, I have learned, we, we're gonna learn. You, every person is gonna learn by one of two means. You're gonna learn by one of two means. You'll either learn by precept or you'll learn by pain. You're gonna learn by precept. By the way, it's a whole lot better to learn by precept. I'm just gonna tell you, I've learned a little bit in my life. It's a whole lot easier to learn by precept. Just to say, God, that's your word. I'm just gonna believe it and I'm gonna trust it that if I disobey you, it's gonna be pain. But if you will not learn by precept, you will learn by pain. You realize God has rigged this world There's a way in which to operate and live that leads to blessing and peace. And then there's a way that seems right into the man, but in the end leads to destruction. And what David is saying, he's saying very clearly, you rebel against God and sin matters and sin will be punished. Can you imagine, I mean, a mom, I mean, a pool of Hebron, that's where everybody went. Mom taking kids, mom, what in the world are those hands and those feet doing there? And that mama putting her hand around her son and daughter and saying, we've got a king who is just. And you walk in obedience, you don't have anything to worry about. But you walk in rebellion and sin, 
it will be punished. What a powerful picture David is painting as he begins his reign over the nation of Israel. Well, let me give you, as we, we, let me just give you some four lessons that you've got to see out of this. There's some pictures here. David is always presenting Christ to us. But I don't think we ever see it more clearly when we do this. I want, to, want you to note four things. Number one, I want you to note the innocence of David. The innocence of David. As we move through all these things, Scripture seems to be going overboard and overboard and overboard to let us know that David is not implicated in the death of Saul. He's not implicated in the death of Abner. He's not uh, implicated in the death of Jonathan. He's not implicated in the death of Ishbosheth. He is innocent. I mean, it's going overboard to show you. He's, as he ascends to the throne, as he becomes the Lord's anointed over the nation of Israel, this is not a man who's ascended the throne by means of deceit, manipulation, death, or his own power. This is a man who has trusted in the Lord with all his heart. He's leaned not on his own understanding, in all his ways. He's acknowledged God, and he has made his path straight. And in that way, David is pointing us to the ultimate king, the better King David, the son of David, the great Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when it comes to Jesus' life, it will go overboard to show us that Jesus himself was and is innocent because he is God. He's perfect and sinless. In fact, you'll remember, Jesus underwent seven trials. And in every situation, he was always pronounced innocent. Pilate would say, in him I find no guilt. The thief on the cross said, surely this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion said, surely this man is innocent. And his own executioners, as they watched him die, said, this man is the son of God. Scripture declares to us over and over and over again that Jesus is perfect, he is sinless, he is God. He was tempted in every way, just as you and I are, yet he was without sin. He's innocent. He's the better David. He is the king of all kings. He is God who dies for our sins. The second thing we see is not just the innocence of David, we see the justice of David. The justice of David. We see it here in the punishment of Benan Rechab. David says to them, as we've just noted, you killed an innocent man and sin must be punished. That this kingdom will be ruled by law and justice. And David will enact vengeance. Scripture tells us over and over again that God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But know this as well. Sometimes God delegates out his vengeance to an institution that he has ordained called the government. And David is acting as government in here, in this passage, in execution of this man for his uh, crime. So God has established government to punish evildoers. That's what Paul says in Romans 13, right? If, if it doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Meaning if you, as, as Paul will say it, if you're an evildoer, you should fear the law and government. But if you're uh, walking in faithfulness, then, then the law and government should be a comfort to you. And so here God delegates out vengeance, but David has said, you committed sin, sin must be punished. David is demonstrating that I will be a just king. And David is pointing us forward to King Jesus, who is just. Let me tell you something that I love about Christianity. Christianity upholds the justice of God. 
It is so critical. You say, what in the world does the justice of God have to do with the gospel? Listen, the good news of the gospel is that God is just. That we serve a God who doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't give sin a pass. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, you sin. It's okay. We'll just overlook it. We'll just let it go. No, we have a God who says sin is sin. And sin must be punished. The great question of scripture, you know, so many people, when it comes to the great question, so many people, you know, they say, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's the question that so many people pose. Do you know what? The Bible has no problem with that. You know what the Bible really struggles with? You know the question of the Bible is? Not how can a loving God send anyone to hell. The question of scripture is, how can a holy God let any of us into heaven? That's the question. How do any of us, as guilty sinners, get into heaven? You know what the answer is? It's the cross. It's Calvary. It's Jesus Christ who dies under the justice and wrath of God. Because how can a holy God maintain his justice and still extend grace and mercy to sinners like you and me? The answer is the cross. The answer is Jesus, where the wrath and justice of God is poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, who dies in our place under the wrath of God so that now God, having appeased his wrath and his judgment, is freed up to extend grace and mercy to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That God is just, there is no more beautiful, clear demonstration of the justice of God than the cross. Listen to me. There's also no more clear and beautiful demonstration of the love of God than the cross. He maintains his justice and extends love and grace through through Jesus Christ. God is just, and he's the justifier of men, Scripture says, through faith in Jesus Christ. But also know this. Not only does Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, die under the justice and wrath of God on the cross, but know this, that Jesus who died on the cross as the Lamb of God, he rose from that grave, he ascended to the Father, and one day, he coming back, and he will put down all wickedness and unrighteousness of men there's a, there is another day of judgment coming. There's Hebron justice coming. And listen to me, God is just. So you only got two options. You only have two options. Either you're gonna trust in Jesus who bore the wrath and justice of God for you and through his shed blood you're covered and redeemed. Or you're gonna face the judgment and wrath of God on your own. Listen to me, if you don't know Christ, what you need to fear is not hell. You need to fear facing the holiness of God apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so here David presents the justice of God, which points us to Jesus where where the justice and wrath of God is peased on the cross. Then we see the patience of David. I love this. He will not run ahead of God. David, so many times he's presented the kingdom The patience of David is so remarkable to me. You know, so many times in our lives, I think we know what God wants to do in our life. And God has made promises to us. And are we not sometimes tempted to take shortcuts? 
little shortcuts where we think that I'll, I'll compromise a little bit over here in these things, but it's a shortcut. It'll get, you know, and we kind of make the, the ends justify the means. That it's okay if I compromise a little bit in these areas because ultimately I'm gonna get where God wants me to go anyway. Listen to me, what David teaches, the ends don't justify the means. And David is a man who says it's not just about achieving God's will, it's about doing it God's way. I love the, the, the defining motto. If there's a motto I put over David's life that I keep in front of me as a reminder of me, David's motto was, I will be who God wants me to be when God wants me to be it. David's motto was, I will just be faithful to God and trust his timing. He'll do it in his time. He'll do it in his way. I don't have to help God out. I'm just gonna be faithful. If there is anything I could tell you today, make sure, make sure that the primary overarching goal of your life is faithfulness. Listen, you make any other goal if, if you, it's okay to set goals. Make sure they're all subservient to the ultimate goal, which is faithfulness to God. Because if you get those rearranged, what you'll do is you'll end, end up compromising in faithfulness to achieve another goal. And you'll miss out on the only thing that really matters, which is faithfulness to God. So David says, I'm just gonna be faithful. God will do it when he wants to. I will not manipulate the circumstances. Does that remind us of anybody who said, I'll be perfectly obedient and faithful? I mean, Jesus comes on the scene. You remember Jesus, he's in the temptation. He's led out in the wilderness. He's tempted. One of the temptations was, uh, Satan takes me, you can be king over everything. You can have it. Was Jesus king? Yes. Was he gonna be? Yes. But you can have it now. I'm offering you a shortcut. What do I gotta do? Worship me. And what did Jesus say? Scripture says, you shall worship the Lord and worship him alone. I will not bow to any other person. I will not take any shortcuts. I will be faithful to God. There was this point in Jesus' life where the people said, we'll make you king. Jesus won't, won't, won't take the bait. I'm just gonna be faithful to God. He's on the cross. He's on the cross. What did they say to him? Take yourself down. If you're God, if you're king, if you are who you say are, take yourself down. Could he have done that? Yeah, he could have called a whole legion of angels, but he will not. Why? I won't take any shortcuts and I'll be faithful to God. It was said of him that although he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. David said, I will be faithful regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what happens, I'll be faithful to God and I will trust in him that he will achieve his purposes and in my humility and faithfulness, there will come a day when he will exalt me. Do we believe that? Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? Do we believe that if we're faithful, regardless of what it costs us in this life, regardless of how painful it might be, regardless how scorned or rejected or despised we might be, if we're faithful to God, there will come a day when it will work out really well for us. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death and therefore what? God did what? God exalted him. And Jesus and David both show us that the way to greatness is through humility and faithfulness. What a picture of patience. Finally, the mercy of God. Look in really quickly. Look at, look at the beginning. I just want to glance into chapter five. 
Look, it says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebrew and said, behold, we're your bone and your flesh. So they, all the tribes come to David. So all the nation, you know what's so interesting? I picture these things in my mind. All of Israel is 11 tribes. David is one tribe, Judah. David has a bigger army. He has more people. Or David has less people. Israel has a bigger army. Israel has more people. And yet here they come, broken and humbled before King David. There's a picture here, folks. Because here's the deal. Any nation that opposes God, his word, and his king will always move towards decline, 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 decline. That is the truth. It don't matter who you are. Ask Babylon. Ask Persia. Ask Syria. Ask Egypt. You defy God's word, his people, his truth, and his king. You're going down. And so here they are. Even though they got more people, God's not with them. And God's just bringing them lower. God's bringing David up. And here they come. They're broken. They're humble. They got nothing. We're the enemy. We've opposed. We've opposed the king. We, we've rebelled against him. They say, we're, we're, we're your bone and your bone, flesh, your flesh. We're, we're your people. And you know what they're also saying? David, you care about it. We're going to trust that you're loving. We're going to trust that you're kind. And then they move on. They say there's proof in verse two. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. The Lord said to you, you'll shepherd my people Israel and you'll be a ruler over Israel. You know what they say? David, you've proven you're the right king. Every time you go out, you win. You beat the Philistines, you beat Goliath, you beat the Amalekites, you you overcame Saul. No matter what happens, you win. You are the Lord's anointing. Not only have you proven it, God commanded it. God told us you're gonna be king. You know what they're saying? You know what Israel is demonstrating right here? The whole nation, they're coming before David, they're saying, we goofed. We were stupid. We rebelled and we shouldn't have. We knew the truth. The truth was in our heart that you were gonna be king. But we chose to suppress that truth because we didn't want that. We chose Ishbosheth over you. And we rebelled against you and we sinned. You know what they're demonstrating right here? Repentance, humility. They're coming to David. They're broke down. They got nowhere else to turn. They're goners. David's king, he could kill them. He could wipe them all out. And they come just saying, we've, we've, we've rebelled, we've sinned. Any guess on how David's were gonna respond? Any guess on what David would do? I don't, know, I don't know about you, but if I were David, you know how I'd responded? Are you kidding me? You put me through seven years of all kinds of mess. You have made my life miserable. You have rejected me. You despised me. You cast me out. I I had all kinds of trouble. People have died because you rebelled. 24 men killed each other on battle because you wouldn't make me king. You knew it in your heart. You knew what you should do. And now all of a sudden, you're gonna show up here with a little apology and a prayer and expect me to forgive you, become your king, and be gracious and, and, and give you blessing. How about you go back north and die? But how does David respond? Folks, don't miss this. This is the most remarkable part of the text. Look at verse three. It says, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron and then they anointed David king over Israel. David had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth. And David will say, come on. Come on and bring it in. We're gonna have a covenant. There's forgiveness here. 
There's grace here. There's mercy here. David, he says, just as I am greatly just, I'm also great in mercy. Does this remind us of anybody? First of all, do you see yourself in this? That we had rebelled against the king. All of us at one time or another had, had, had turned and gone our own way. We had rebelled against King Jesus. You know what we said? We want to be king. I want to be king over my life. I don't want you telling me what to do. We rebelled against him. We made ourselves king. We followed the path of this world. We caused all kinds of pain in our own life. We caused all kinds of pain in everybody else's life around us. We were sinners. We had rebelled. And what we deserved was the justice and wrath of God. And yet we came to Christ in a simple prayer. Can you imagine this? All the pain, all the rebellion, all our sin. And we just came to him in a simple prayer. King, we're stupid. And we don't know why, but we rebelled against you. And we're guilty and we're just hoping, we're just hoping that you would be merciful. And the king says, come on. It's okay. You're forgiven. We're going to make a covenant. I promise you can trust me. There's grace here. And we're all family now. We're all family. So I was reading this. I couldn't think, help but think of a, a young boy who told his dad one day, I want my inheritance. I don't want you to control my life. I want to be king. Give me my money and I'm gone. He took all his stuff, and where was his robe? He sold it. Where was his ring? He sold it. Where was his sandals? He was a servant. He lost everything, and he found himself broken down face first in the mud with pigs. And he was broken. And he had nowhere else to go. And he remembered the father. And he said, his servants have it better than me. I don't deserve to be a son, but maybe if I go, he'll make me, make me a servant. I don't know. And he picks himself up and he starts headed home. And do you remember? The father saw him from a long way off. I can't help but think when David, all he has wanted is unity in the nation. It wasn't about his position this was God's chosen people. Let them unite. And as he sees them from a distance, I can't help but think David hit his knees in worship with tears in his eyes. And you remember that father runs. He girded up his robe. Old men didn't gird up their robes. They didn't show them ugly, veiny legs. You know, it was nasty. But that father, he didn't care. I don't care what people say about me. That's my son. And I'm not going to walk to him. I'm going to run to him. And he embraces his stench and his nastiness. And he says, give him the robe and the ring and kill the fatted calf. Because that which was dead has been made alive. Because when you walk away from God in rebellion, listen to me, you're a dead man walking. He was lost as found. And there was great rejoicing. You know what? As I 
the one question that I had as I came to this was of Israel. I can't help but wonder if David didn't want to say to them, what took you so long? Why seven years? Why, why couldn't you have turned earlier? You, you look at all you've caught. Why not sooner? I pose that question to you today. Have you been walking in rebellion? Listen to me. Jesus is king whether you want him to be or not. God has declared him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And maybe you've been running from him. And it's been pain and pain and pain and pain. Listen to me. If you have become to a place where you are broken and you have no place to turn, turn to Jesus. If you'll come to him in humility. If you come in your pride trying to impress him, you're going to have to go somewhere else. But if you'll come in humility and repentance and faith, he says, come home. There's mercy, there's grace, there's forgiveness. Father, we thank you for your word that every aspect, every page points us to King Jesus. Lord, I, I pray for the person that's here that maybe, maybe they don't know you. They've never trusted in you. Maybe they, they know the truth that, that Romans 1 says you place the knowledge of yourself in every one of us, but maybe in their own sinful rebellion they've suppressed that truth. They know your king. They've heard about you, they know about you, but, but they've wanted to be their own king. They've rebelled, they've suppressed that truth, but maybe now the circumstances of their life, just like Israel, all the obstacles, all the lies have been, been pushed aside and, and they're confronted with the truth of your lordship. I pray, Lord, that they would humble themselves in faith and repentance and they would know your salvation this morning. That God, just as you did with that prodigal son, you would run to them this morning and you would embrace them in your love and your grace and your forgiveness. God, for those of us that do know you, the, the fact of the matter is just because you, we know you doesn't mean that we, we don't occasionally wander. We get off path. We struggle and wrestle control away from you and back into our own lives. And there's pain. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here that's in that situation, they would run back to you. They know your grace and your forgiveness, your mercy and your freedom today. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.